Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello everybody, welcome back to the second episode. Uh, this time uh, it is up to me, David Crowther, to propose a movie and I'm joined, as always, by... Hello! <laughs> Wolf here. Right, brilliant, that's good. I was just worried it was somebody else there for a moment, so it's glad, good that it's you. No, it's me. Excellent. Uh, right, so I, my film is Master and Commander. So, Wolf, this isn't your kind of movie, isn't it? Be honest to me. I remember this movie when it came out. Oh, yeah. I remember we were still um, completely overwhelmed by Gladiator, which had mm-hmm. only come like two years prior. Right. I remember when Gladiator came out, watching on a DVD player on like a large TV right. with surround uh, system, like okay. the very first time watching that movie and being completely bowled over. Yeah. And I was still in that headspace okay. when Master and Commander came out. I have a greater appreciation for it than I would if it wasn't for my brother and my dad. Right. Do they their, like it? Their love of Sharp, Hornblower, ah, etc. Right. Okay. means that I've watched a lot of those television shows, a lot of those movies. So I've watched this film many times. Okay. So this is one of my favourite movies of all time. Why is it I like it so much? One is the stunning depiction of life on a boat. And we'll talk about that a bit more in historical accuracy. You know, a small wooden box, stuffed full of blokes. The description's excellent. It has in it the third best joke in an English language movie. Is this uh, factually correct? Is this factually correct? It is. For historical, fact, do we have to question this podcast on a later podcast? <laughs> we will, yes, whether it's accurate. Also, I have to say that, you know, the British Navy thing, we were really good at it. Now, I know that that is unacceptable, that the British Navy was simply a symbol of international oppression. And every morning when I like the movie, I go outside and I beat myself with a hazel twig in the morning dew. OK, and that's probably what you heard this morning, those, those screams. Yes. So I realise it's a bad thing that's unacceptable, but nonetheless... Also, ignorance is a great promoter of enthusiasm. I know nothing about sailing ships. The only time I sailed was in my youth in a dinghy and I hated it. But I love the whole thing about the wooden sailing ships and all the rest of it. And, you know, what is a, 
Yeah, the difference between a sloop and a brigantine and a bark and a frigate and a... I love all that. So that's great. So anyway, so that's why I love this movie. These historical background. Napoleonic Wars. Uh, it's based on the Patrick novel, Brian novels. Ever any, read any of those? No. Have you read any of the Sharp novels? A couple. Okay, so they're kind of similar to that. I mean, I've read all the Patrick O'Brien books, and I suppose when we talk about historical accuracy, the question will be, how close is it to the books? And actually, I don't think they are. I think this takes an amalgam of some of the books. It's along the broad drifts, but I think, for example, if I remember rightly, in the books it's a sloop, uh, and in this I think it's, there's got too many, too many guns, I think, uh, in this one. Patrick O'Brien's novels are set on the life of a man called Thomas Cochrane. Thomas Cochrane was the most absurdly, ridiculously, I don't know, boy's own figure, I suppose. But he was real. He was real. Okay. So he was a, an Irishman, um, I think. No, he's a Scot. Sorry, pardon, pardon me. It's a big mix-up. A big mix-up. I would like to formally apologise. So he's a Scot. He's in and out of the British Navy. But he, he is absolutely incredibly audacious. So all those things of Jack Aubrey, you'd think, oh, this is rubbish, you know, that never happened. Thomas Crocken was doing it, you know. Eventually, I think, he gets done for fraud. And the Al Capone of his day. Al Capone of his day. So he gets kicked out of the Navy eventually because he's court-martialed and he becomes a political radical, uh, which is all about, you know, it's about 1832 and the um, Reform Act and all the rest of it. And then he joins the Chilean and Brazilian navies and he helps their revolutions, as you do. do. Then he's rehabilitated into the British Navy and he dies as an Admiral of the Red in 1860. So, and you know, what I've described is not the half of it. You know, he went around, he was just one of those people who have complete self-confidence to do anything that they want to do. And these books are based on his life. The film was about Jack Aubrey and he's got his pal... Uh, Stephen, who's a naturalist, so you get a bit of that flavour of discovery of the early 19th century, as mm-hmm. well as, you know, the world is opening up, they're going to the Galapagos Islands, naturalists are all over the place, learning about the world around them, you get a little bit of flavour of that, it's not just about war. I like the fact there are lots of subplots in the in movie, so, you know, there's the basic one, that they're searching for the French frigate, the, the Acheron, and there's the thing about their duel with this ship, and that's the traditional stuff, and that's kind of the thing that... You know, I like it's a framework for the movie, and that's great. And you've got that daring do thing, but it seems to me there's much more in the film than that. At heart, it's a it's sort of a bromance movie, isn't it? It's a it's a, and I must admit, I did think afterwards. I think I said to you earlier that it's a terribly blokey movie. You know, there is I think there's one I think there's one woman in the movie who sells them a breadfruit from a canoe or something. You know, that is the extent. It's an important role. It's an important role. So it's absolutely about that relationship between, between the men. But also it describes that work beautifully. And although it doesn't, it's hardly a sort of blood and guts thing in the sense of exposing the, the horrors of war, it does give you some flavour of the negative or the difficult things about a bunch of blokes sailing around the world in a wooden boat for years on end. So there is a whipping, uh, there is a... A failure of fellowship, as they described at the time, when one of the sailors is superstitiously fingered as being, uh, you know, a Jonah who's causing bad luck. And that guy, you know, you know, that is not a, that doesn't end well, as it were. Try not to do plot spoilers here. And the and the battle scenes are not again. Don't minimise death. Okay, they're glorious, you know, cutlass stuff. It's not quite saving Private Ryan, but nonetheless, they're reasonably realistic. I like that combination. So one of the things I thought we ought to do in order to bring home that life together is to sing a song. 
because one of the brilliant things about the movie is that accuracy and they sing a naval song and I've had a look at the naval song and it was it was certainly written it might have been written a little bit later but it's very much in the spirit of the time so I thought we should sing that song now listener I should tell you that neither of us uh, can sing I believe my singing is as good as Russell Crowe's in Les Miserables. Is that right? Well, yes, okay, that's setting the bar reasonably low. Yes. So, this is a naval song. It's not quite a shanty, I think, because I think shanties are later, actually, and shanties are work-related. But there's a lovely scene where they're all gathered around the table, and first of all, we get the third best joke in English-language cinema. Which Which is? is? So they're sitting there, and Jack Aubrey asks Stephen to choose between two weevils ah, which yes. have crawled out of a ship's biscuit, okay? Yes. And he pushes in and Stephen doesn't want to do it. He thinks it's just silly. And eventually he says, well, I choose this one. And Jack says to him, ah, but there I've got you. Because in the Navy, you always have to choose the lesser of two weevils. That's a class gag, isn't it? It's, it's exceptional. <laughs> it's ex- <laughs> You're not quite as convinced You now have to ask me the question. What are the other two better <laughs> jokes that are better than that? First one is Life of Brian, of course. Uh, I was going to say. not the Messiah. He's a very lotty boy. The second one is, I think, Cleopatra. Don't carry on. I mean, the carry on movies are, in general, appalling. But he's being killed, is what's his name. And he says, infamy, infamy. They've all got an infamy. I mean, it's a great gag, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> Exceptional stuff. <laughs> You're being very good. Anyway, so, a song. So they're all in the boardroom together. It's all being stressful. And one of them cracks up with a song. And he sings... Safe and sound at home again. Let the waters roar, Jack. Safe and sound at home again. Let the waters roar, Jack. Long we've tossed on the rolling main. Now we're safe for sure, Jack. Don't forget your old shift, mate. Father and early ride We have walked the self-same gun. Quarter deck division. Sponge I and loader you through the whole commission. Long, Long we've tossed on the rolling main. Now we're safe for sure, Jack. Don't forget your old shipmate. Fadiradiradi rido. Oh, superb. So, exceptional stuff. Exceptional stuff. Fantastic. So, you get a bit of a flavour. You know, they, what's really good about the Really movie, ready to shoot the French. <laughs> Excellent. It's invigorated. It's that feeling of uh, camaraderie. One of the other things I like about the movie is also is that one of the extraordinary things that we can't relate to, I think, these days is the youth, the extreme youth of some of the people that came into the service. So people would start as a midshipman from the age of 12. So you have this, this situation where you've got very young, you know, young boys living in an adult world and how they react to that adult world and how they find themselves and how they respond. Some with courage, some with hero worship, some with despair. And I think that's, it's a very alien world to us. How did you get the rank on the ship? So how, as like young children, like inexperienced, are they seemingly of a higher rank than a large number of the men on board and they're destined to be promoted, go on, while other people with... Lots of skills yeah. who know how to sail a ship never achieve anything yes. similar. and would never, you know... Is that just position, wealth? That is... I mean, it's entirely accurate. It's a, so, a world where social rank is absolutely ingrained. And actually, I think they show that very well in the movie. That So there's a lovely bit where one of the, one of the lads is bossing around the seaman. And the way they accept it and respond to him 
you know, there's a little bit of jostling about the fact that he's only 12 and they're telling him what to do. But on the other hand, they're accepting that he's a midshipman and that's what he's there to do. And they go along with it in very good humour. And I think that that reflects the reality of the world. It was expected that people of this social rank would be the ones that were promoted. So I thought the actors were very good. I know plenty of people who can't stand Russell Crowe. And there are some many films I've seen him in where I haven't liked him. Robin Hood. Robin Hood, for example. I thought he was a Les bit Miserable. rubbish. Les Miserables. That was a bit rubbish. But Gladiator, he's brilliant at. And this role, I think, is perfect for him. He, he, he downplays really. it quite a lot, actually. Yeah. He's the centre of attention when he's there, but he's, he's not shouting unnecessarily. Yeah. He's not unfair. He's not this huge character who's, like, out of control, mm. dominating the screen. Yeah. He's relatively mild-mannered most of the time. Mm. He's just really good as a leader. Yeah. So okay. he takes charge when he needs to. Yeah. I thought so too. He's more likeable than in most of his movies. Yeah, I would, I would say so too. You don't get that feeling of bombast, but you do get that very strong sense of a, a leader who knew what he was doing. Was and that goes for the whole film, to be honest. Hmm. There is no sense that you're watching a blockbuster of some sort right. at all. Hmm. It feels like it should be an older movie right. than 2003. When you consider the budget that they have, the availability of the effects that they've got, that it's stunning that when they get Russell Crowe as a lead, they do this relatively small mm. movie. It has one story, really. Mm. The detour being the Galapagos Islands. Yeah. And it's really just about life on the ship. That, that They would give you that budget to make a mm. film about life on a ship. When you think about Pirates of the Caribbean is coming out around the same sort of time and how that spawned like seven movies yeah. and everything that's come with that, that this movie would have such good effects... Mm. And recreation of sets, etc., but is allowed to do its own thing, right? Which is relatively quiet in comparison. Yeah. I guess they expected, didn't they, that they had got all these Patrick O'Brien books, and there's a lot of them that they'd have a franchise then that they'd just keep rolling out, and it kind of made a bit of money, didn't it? But nothing, not enough to warrant doing it again. I thought the other actors as well. There's so many good actors who work really well. Paul Bettany is, you know, love Paul Bettany, and you know he plays this. Very, you know, beautifully. The chemistry works really well between him and Russell Crowe. In fact, generally speaking, the thing that makes the movie is that the chemistry works well between the, the actors. The music. So we've talked about... We've just sung that song. How Perfectly, they, I should say. Perfectly, I should say. How do they choose? I mean, you know, you're a film guy, so you probably, maybe you get in the odd to this. But the choosing of um, music in, in films seems to be... It's absolutely incredible. So there's a, you know, there's a bit of music by a chap called Boccherini, who is a... You know, third-rate, sorry, someone is probably getting very cross with me, but a kind of third-rate composer. And they pick a bit of music that they play together, and it just works beautifully. And, of course, it runs over your favourite film form, the, the montage. The music is just brilliant. The music is fantastically chosen. So, I put it to you. I think there, there are some negatives, but, you know, I really don't know what they are, and they must be piffling. I looked at Roger Ebert, who I understand is a, um, uh, some sort yes. of trying to become a critic. And he wrote... He's one of the most established ever. Right, OK. This might have been his lesser-known brother, actually. No, you're actually right, Roger Ebert. Um, it achieves the epic without losing sight of the human. Bang on. So that's what I thought about it. I think I've ranted enough. What do you think of it? No, I, I agree. I completely understand where you're coming from. This is a film that, I'll be honest, does not excite me. I can't really remember it when it's over. Right. I desperately want to see it on the big screen, mm-hmm. having not mm. seen it in the cinema when it came out. Yeah. Because I think that what the movie gives you would be very impressive on mm. the big screen. 
you'd really be in that world, which is feels so accurate and real. And like you can hear the the planks like creaking, you can mm. hear the water, you can feel the ship breathing and moving around you yeah. all the time. It's completely believable. There's no scenery chewing, uh, none of that. I do have some issues with it. Okay. The, but just the main thing is, I'm just going to say that I'm probably not its target audience. Yeah. I completely understand why people love it mm. and where they're coming from. And I, even if I don't always agree, especially from coming from a military background, I do completely get the love of remembering kind of times gone by when our military was important and meant something to us. Not to get political, but there has yeah. been a loss of that. Yeah. And it's <clears throat> changed a lot. And mm. our ideas of that have altered. It is always nice to go back to a time when we believed wholeheartedly in it. Mm. There is nobody on that ship is once going to question going to their own death no. for this glory of sinking a French ship. Sorry, are you questioning that now? No, I think we... we yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it, if you can point me to the nearest French ship and I'll yes, go and... I've just found one. We're going. We're off. We're, come, we're come off. Late. <laughs> but... Yeah. No, I take the point. Yeah, absolutely. So I, so I, I, I completely understand that. Mm. I love that if you're interested in sailing, uh, coming from by the ocean, like my dad owns a boat, like all this kind of stuff. Like I get why loads of people are really into that and i can understand that the kind of the boy's own adventure of mm. it it is real i would argue that it's not trying to be grisly mm. it's it yeah. feels real but it's trying to hide some of the worst yes, details absolutely. so it's got great stuff like when he slips on the blood and he throws can we get some sand down here mm. it ha- it's what two seconds and it's gone yeah and it provides historical accuracy uh, realness of the setting, you're completely involved and I'm like, oh wow, okay, they've got to put mm. sand down. I didn't know that, I couldn't remember yeah. that. They've got to put sand down to soak up the blood. Mm. Great. But it's not one of those movies where it cuts below deck and it's got men screaming yeah. and hollering, their guts coming out all over the floor, yeah. the cannons have like blown them apart. It shows some, yeah, but it, that's not really its goal. No, and it definitely pulls its punch with that. It, it's not that. trying to be visceral in that <clears> sense, <throat> no. it's trying to be awe-inspiring in an adventure yeah. sense. Yeah. Which is why the movie's values are fairly basic, mm. honour, this kind yeah. of stuff. And, and they use these few key values and then they, it ties everything around it. They're not really going to question that anyone's going to go against them. They're like, let's just do this for yes. king and country. And everyone's like, huzzah! Yeah, and then they go off to war. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not like an anti-war no. movie it's certainly not made in that setting. Movie, no. It's not trying to be too complicated in that sense. I think its goal is purely to bring it to life. Yeah. And it's not going to be too challenging. So yeah. I think it's an easy one. I don't feel that it's ever pushing me. I feel like it's there to be enjoyed. Yeah. And I'm blown away by the actual physical effects. The the actual set, the ship, yeah. the visuals, all of that stuff is great. And some of the tactician stuff that's going on between the fighting and the ships mm-hmm. is fascinating. Mm-hmm. The fog, it, it's all really, really great. Yeah. And I quite like the soft bit in the middle where they are kind of on the Galapagos Islands. Yeah. That, to me, makes the film feel completely different because... Mm-hmm. It clearly sets it apart from so many others. They wouldn't waste their time mm. there. It has its own feel that it wants to stick to. And it feels quite old-fashioned. I really think that this could easily have been made around the time of the Brando Mutiny on the Bounty or something. Right. You could see it quite comfortably yeah. in, in that kind of a slot. It felt, like, it felt like an enthusiasm project, didn't it, to a degree. It felt like somebody had managed to convince somebody... Uh, in a film studio to do the thing that they'd always wanted to do was recreate life on a 19th century, 18th and, century sailing ship. And that's what it is. 
Peter Way is a really good director. Yeah. So if you've seen, I looked the, him up actually. I hadn't seen what else, what else had he done. So if you've seen the Truman Show or you've seen I've Witness, seen that, yeah. or even if you've seen The Way Back, which is a little bit more recent, his films are about people, right? And they're always about people, uh, which is why he obviously focuses a lot on the Amish community. Uh, the The Truman Show is all about this one man yes. in this kind of crazy good world. Movie, he makes really good movies, and they're always slightly out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. They aren't the main focus. You don't think that you're going to like go and yeah. watch them. But, and he, he makes them, and they're really interesting. It's all about the people. And this movie just is about people yeah, on a ship. Absolutely, That's all it's trying to be. I think I have zero negative feelings towards the movie. I just don't have any. But I don't have enthusiasm for it yeah. either. Do we feel that there's a deliberate connection with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? That's interesting. The well, the Albatross thing. Because obviously, it, yeah. it's set prior to that, so they wouldn't know anything about it. But I just find it weird mm. that they're talking about this bad omen, but then they're desperate to shoot this Albatross. Yeah. <laughs> and it clearly becomes a bad omen. It's but... funny, isn't it? Because also, when, um, you know, in the bad thing that happens to one of the, uh, the shipmates, you know, they're all a bit sorry and all the rest of it. And then. And it's like he was a bad omen. And, and then it was a bad omen. I don't know what they're doing with that. I don't know what they're doing with that. I'm not sure how much they are consciously doing. I mean, you, you, there's nothing else about the rhyme of the ancient manner in the in the movie. There's, you know, the albatross thing. I think is more on the naturalist line, actually, and yes. it just happens to be that it. They know, must be aware across an albatross. I don't think there's anything deeper than that. How, how do you feel it portrays the French? Are they? Um, I mean, like there a is faceless the yeah, enemy. I think you know they are built up to be a clever and reasonably honourable. You know, they're there to be beaten, but they're part of the game, as it were. Does that make any sense? Do, do, do you ever stop for a second and think that they're just the better ship and the only reason they lose is because the British have to be these like yeah, sneaky dogs? Absolutely. But through history, everybody has respected sneakiness in war. So the Vikings, for example, a lot of the Vikings talk about how they tricked the English. Sneakiness has always been something that people have respected in war. But being cleverer rather than bigger and stronger is the is the message, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't, I don't think it's a bad message. I just I find it... I like that early on in the movie, they have that whole discussion. They're like, oh, how do we get beat? Oh, well, it's because they've got this magic ship. It's because they've right. got this, this crazy material yes. that they've built it out of. That's why you can't get in. And then they have to just stop and be like, no, no, wait. We just got beat because we aren't good enough. Right. And they're really good. Like, they just are better in every way. That is probably too bold a message that mm. the most British kind of movies would do. I wouldn't argue that we would be that self-critical. Interesting. So you think that we'd be more comfortable with the message that look, we're just better at this? I just think that it, it's interesting that so many of them make this assumption that they didn't get beaten by mm. a better opponent. They were beaten by somebody who was cheating somewhat by having right. more advanced materials. Ah, oh, I see, right. They were so... like, oh, their hull is impenetrable. That's why right. we couldn't do anything. I didn't take away from it any impression that the film is trying to paint the opposition as playing up the game unfairly. No, no. That's what you mean. I don't think the film does, but I think a series of those characters in that room, there's like nine of them talking. There's a whole bunch of them that that never consider to themselves that they've been beaten by a superior opponent. Right, okay. They're all trying yes. to come up with excuses for why they lost, either yes. to protect themselves because yeah. it's like, how did we fail this mission? They're like, well, it wasn't definitely wasn't me. I, it was them. Yeah. Uh, so th- there is a sort of a pointing, blaming kind of thing. Yeah, I, interesting. Yeah. I think also, I remember a discussion about Australian cricket a while ago. I'm not sure if this is relevant. Where I was complaining about an English cricket who'd been interviewed about why they lost again. And they said something, you know, I can't remember even what they said, but it was something slightly whiny. And they said that an Australian would never have said that because the Australian cricket team at the time was at the top of the game and would not accept no failure and would accept no excuses. It's the same, I would have said, with at that stage, by the early, early 1800s, 
although the French had rebuilt their navy, they'd already lost in the War of Spanish Succession, Seven Years' War. Uh, continually, Britain has had a, a, almost a century of naval supremacy. And, you know, if you're a market leader, you are the first person to develop new technologies, new skills, and it's very hard, therefore, to catch up with a market leader. And I think it's the same attitude there, isn't it? The British Navy got to the position where they couldn't believe they could lose, and therefore they didn't. I think they use it to make Aubrey stand out from the rest of the crew because he's the only one who will admit their failings. Mm. He's even though he's had won all these battles prior and he has like the best record of any of them, and they always talk about Nelson and all these other people and compare him to them, etc. He's the only one who will admit that they've been beaten by a superior opponent mm. and that they need to reevaluate and think about their strategies. And I think the whole movie is trying to show him how he's different from so many others. Yeah. And they win by by cheating, which is so by much, learning a new technique. Maybe you're right. By learning a new technique, otherwise known as cheating, which I would argue is similar to it's a big theme in movies, which people like about the great man. And without being bombastic, Jack Aubrey is built up as the great man, the man who will always find the answers somewhere. The key thing is this, though, that he wouldn't solve it if it weren't for Paul Bettany. It's when he stops being hmm. himself. It's when he starts listening to others. He begins to compromise, and he begins to view the world in a new light. Hmm. That, and he considers the natural world and these things that he's never considered before and stops being this military tactician yeah. who goes off of all the previous conflicts he's won mm. and goes, I'm in a new situation, I don't know how to achieve it, let's try this new thing. Mm. He makes the team around him work well. Yeah, he's not general yeah, and pattern. And uses them. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. I do just have to ask, yes? so if the film is based on the books, yeah. and if the books are based on history, how yeah. accurate are the books to the history of the time? In general, what you've got here is a story. It's, it's completely fiction. It's set in a historical framework, and that historical framework, I think, is very accurate. The Weston Warp, the, the texture of the ship and the people and all the rest of it. But the actual activities here, the actual events, are entirely fictional. Okay, so what I want to know then is, when we're weighing up historical accuracy... Yes. If not a single event in the movie ever happened, did yeah. the other characters on the ship exist? Absolutely not. It's even Jack Aubrey being based on Thomas Cochrane, he's inspired by him. He's not describing the sort okay. of exactly the sort of things that Thomas Cochrane did. So none of that happened, but it feels like it yeah. happened. How historically accurate would you define yes. the film? That's for us to decide how we want to run it, but it's, it doesn't pretend to be describing a series of events. I would mark a film down if it said, this is what happens. And actually, that isn't what happened. So, infamous example of U571, the fact that they put the wrong ship doing the activity, and yet it's pretending to be a record of events, is, to me, a killer. Whereas this never doesn't pretend to be a real story. Yeah, it's completely accurate for, is it 1815? Absolutely, yeah. It gives you the year, it gives you the year... Yeah. And then it's 100% accurate to life yeah, in that absolutely. year. Absolutely. That's what I. In that part of the world. That's what I admire about this movie, that it, for me, it describes that world. Everything it says it's being accurate, and it tells you it's being accurate about it is brilliantly accurate. There is apparently one hour in the movie where they send, uh, they send the captured ship to uh, Valparaiso, in, which was apparently miles away. So there's one hour in the movie. Apart from that, everything that it would claim to be accurate, I think, is very accurate indeed. So. How would you rate its historical act? Since it's not pretending to be a record of historical events, I'd put it up as a nine. Because for me, within what it claims to be, it is incredibly accurate. Okay. And otherwise, we're always going to have to mark books which are, you know, films which are fictional. Just in, just in, okay, so if you take Sharp, for example, yeah. how accurate would you rate? Same as Sharp. this. 
Um, okay. And Bernard Cornwall's very good at that, actually. In fact, that's more a record of events uh, right, sharp okay. than, than this is, because he actually has Wellington there and he has, you know, campaigns in India and so on. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. Okay. I'll go with you. And then, quality of film. We're going to be different on this, aren't we? Um, I'm probably going to say, like, seven. Okay. So, and you're, you're basically for arguing that this isn't the sort of film that you'd normally go and see. You can see that it's workmanlike, does its job really well. Uh, so let's go along with that. I would, of course, mark it 55 out of 10. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but obviously that's it's not a bit low, David. Yeah, a bit low, yeah. So, yeah, let's go along with that kind of level. Because I can understand that it is, you know, a movie for a particular purpose. I, I just think in, in terms of story, in terms of values, in terms yeah. of theme, uh, in all of that sense, nothing exceptional ever takes place. Uh, no, yeah. And I wouldn't say any of the acting is exceptional. We're pleasantly surprised that Russell Crowe isn't bad. That's all we're thinking. Um, so <laughs> I'd put it a bit higher. I think. I think because why? I mean, take your point. It's not challenging. It's not. It doesn't set the bar differently. I thought it, oh, its accuracy maybe does. But yeah, okay. I take the point. Nonetheless, the point about judging a film is you have to judge it for doing what it's set yes. out to do. And what it did was try to appeal to people like me and your dad. Uh, it didn't set out to appeal to you. I am impressed that it was made. I am yeah. impressed that. The, even got made. It's been like Twilight. The argument's about Twilight. You know, clearly, just, you know, why would anybody make that movie? But for some people, absolutely loved it because it was for design for them. And I do agree that there's actually, I don't have any negatives with it at all. Yeah. There's nothing in this movie that really angers me. So I think that everything it does is really good, but I just can't really rate it higher than a okay. seven. When I'm watching it, it's seven, but when I'm not watching it, I can't even really remember that right. it exists. Okay, well, seven and eight then. Fine. So we're done. We know that A Man for All Seasons is coming up. But probably the next, not the next one, but the one after. Because yours is the next movie, isn't it? Do you know what you're going to do? No, I don't. No, you don't. So, watch this space. Oh, excuse me. Sorry to interrupt, um, well, myself from a few weeks ago. But before historical David and Wolf do the goodbyes, I would like to interject briefly. One of the things I love about podcasting is the conversations it sparks with people from all over. So we thought, Wolf and I, it'd be good if a quick round-up about the Facebook debate, who was who, who said what, you know, gossip. Well, the whole thing kicked off with a what-is-a-historical-movie-anyway debate, which basically ended up with a, hmm, which is good, you know. There was a group of you who had some connection with the Bay Area at the time of Zodiac, for whom, therefore, the Zodiac story had quite a lot of resonance, probably unsurprisingly, and equally, that meant that some of you had no desire whatsoever to relive it. One of S's posts led to a discussion about whether an out-and-out documentary is much better for a subject of real crime rather than a dramatisation. I think Wolf mentioned one scene in the film, for example, where David Fincher fills a scene with a lot of dramatic tension that simply wasn't there at the time in real events. And for some of you, a straight presentation is what you wanted, however accurate the film might be. On the other hand, everyone agreed that the acting was superb in Zodiac and Tiffany made the point that it was really the story of obsession that drove the movie as much as the crime itself. I am shattered to have to report that we then went to a list conversation. I love list conversations. Favourite true crime conversation, a category which turned out to be just as wide as the what is a historical movie conversation we had. In Cold Blood did pretty well. Luke chose U571 because it was criminal. Haha, <laughs> boom, and if you will, Tish will be here all week. Harvey suggested Bugsy, which got quite a bit of support, though I was disappointed to learn it doesn't involve custard pies. The French Connection came up. Basically, a load of good movies. Turns out, 
Everyone loves a list conversation. And on the way, by the way, we establish that Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat is the greatest ever musical. Or at least, it was established to my satisfaction. And what was the upshot of all this full and frank exchange of views? Well, about a third of you had never seen it, but were now interested, which is great. And we'd love any of you who do now find it and watch it to come back and tell us what you thought. And possibly sue us if you didn't like it. For the rest of you, well, I think the school report would say mixed. Another third liked or loved it, but a third of you concluded that it just wasn't for you. And there was one of you who would have put it on their top 10 historical movies of all time list. So, you know, if you're listening, David Fincher, it's a B minus minus plus, basically. In the words of Azim in Robin Hood, get up, move faster. Okie dokie, back to historical David and historical Wolf. Although one more thing I find I need to point out is that Master and Commander, while reasonably accurate to the Patrick O'Brien books, is a combination of more than one. And the most significant change was in making the enemy French rather than American as it is in the books, on which I have no comment. In the meantime, we have decided that next time we will be doing Amadeus, by the way, which is just a stonking movie. I used to have a basic, hormonally driven way of judging movies. This was... Did I remember it after seeing it in Sixth Form Film Club? Because I happened to go to an all-boys grammar school. Sixth Form Film Club used to be joint with the local girls' school and therefore there were so many other things to think about other than the film. Basically, if a film could survive Sixth Form Film Club, it was in all probability a work of genius. Amadeus passed that test. Anyway, back to historical David and historical Wolf. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, and once again, come along to the Facebook site, go and have a look at the website, take part, tell us what you think. Okay, Rate our singing. <laughs> yes, I'm right, I'm singing. No, don't do that. All right. Cheers, everybody. Are you not entertained? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.